Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast, where we critically analyze one paper in the medical literature each week. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 10, Abatacept in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis and Interstitial Lung Disease, a National Multicenter Study of 63 Patients. Now, I know I said last week that I was going to talk about the rheumageddon, and I'm still planning to talk about that soon, but tonight is a special night because the folks at Journal Club are talking about this paper. I'm not sure if this is an emergency podcast or a supplemental podcast, or if it's just going to be the podcast for this week. But next time, I promise I'll get to the paper about the rheumageddon. For now, let's talk about abatacept and interstitial lung disease. So for background, interstitial lung disease is a common and pretty serious complication of rheumatoid arthritis. The prevalence is relatively high, anywhere from 20 to 50%, and it's a really important cause of mortality in these patients. It's probably the second cause of death, according to the background research from this paper. And in my anecdotal experience, patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have ILD do quite a lot worse than the ones who don't. We'll hit on this a little bit more later, but it's also a hard thing to manage. The problem is that rheumatoid arthritis, all by itself, can cause interstitial lung disease. On top of that, the treatments for rheumatoid arthritis can cause interstitial lung disease. Patients who are being appropriately managed with methotrexate and develop ILD, may be developing it because they're not adequately controlled. Perhaps they're developing it because they've been given methotrexate. This is also true for leflunamide. Unfortunately, we also see this in TNF inhibitors, as well as rituximab and perhaps tocilizumab. The first of those, the TNF inhibitors, seems pretty solid because you can see this interstitial lung disease in patients with Crohn's disease who are treated with TNF inhibitors. That kind of removes the possible confounding with a patient who has rheumatoid arthritis. Rituximab, there have been quite a number of cases, and in tocilizumab, there have been a couple of relatively concerning case reports. To date, we don't really know how to treat these patients. My general practice has been to discontinue any agents that I think are causing the interstitial lung disease. You can probably imagine the problem that presents. How do we know which agent's causing it? How do we know that the real problem isn't that the patient is just under-controlled? Perhaps the right thing to do is to continue the methotrexate and add on another agent. We don't really know the answer, so this can be a vexing clinical dilemma. The CTLA-4 inhibitor, abatacept, has not demonstrated any convincing evidence that it causes interstitial lung disease. Consequently, a number of people have suggested that it may be a reasonable thing to switch to after interstitial lung disease occurs. So far, however, there hasn't been too much convincing data that this is the right thing to do. To this end, these authors set out to do a retrospective observational study of abatacept in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who developed interstitial lung disease. So let's talk about the methods. This was a national, multi-center, non-controlled, open-label registry study of patients with interstitial lung disease. You see a lot of relatively high-quality retrospective observational studies coming out of Europe where they have a more nationalized healthcare system so they can take from all of the various regional centers and put together a database like this. This particular one was done in Spain from 2000 to 2016 from 31 centers. Patients had to have at least three months of follow-up after starting a abatacept. Rheumatoid arthritis was diagnosed according to the ACR 1987 definition or the more up-to-date ACR ULAR 2010 criteria, depending on when they were diagnosed, of course. Interstitial lung disease was based on high-res CT scans of the chest by multiple radiologists and was you know, reasonably appropriate the way they did it. There were some who got biopsied, but that's not necessarily standard of care, and so it's okay that not everyone was. They categorized patients as usual interstitial pneumonia, 
nonspecific interstitial pneumonia, or NSIP, and other patterns. That was bronchiolitis obliterans, organizing pneumonia, etc. Disease activity scores were done using the DAS-28, and they also checked inflammatory markers like the ESR and the CRP. Pulmonary function tests were performed based on the 2002 recommendations of the Spanish Society of Pulmonology and Thoracic Surgery. To be included in the study, patients had to be treated with at least one dose of abatacept after they were diagnosed with ILD. Abatacept was given at a standard IV or subcutaneous dose. Truthfully, in the United States, I feel like we always use the subcutaneous dose. And the time between the baseline high-res CT scan and the abatacept onset ranged between one and two weeks, which is pretty good. Outcome variables included the following. The Modified Medical Research Council Scale, Pulmonary Function Testing, Improvement, worsening, or stability criteria on the high-res CT scans evaluated by radiology, and DAS-28, CRP, and or ESR data, so essentially measures of how active the rheumatoid arthritis was. The statistics were all appropriate. They used the Wilcoxon test for continuous variables and, you know, chi-squares and Fisher test for categorical ones. So let's talk about who was in this study. Again, this was a retrospective study. They assessed 63 patients in total who had rheumatoid arthritis-associated ILD treated with the Batacept. The mean age was 63 years. Most patients were female, but there were a hefty number of males, and a higher rate of smokers were included in this study, 60%. That makes sense because patients who develop ILD also tend to smoke. There was a high rate of seropositive disease. Rheumatoid factor was around 87%, and a CCP was around 86%, with a relatively high titer. The chest CT patterns were mostly usual interstitial pneumonia, 46%, and then about a third and a third to NSIP and the, the, you know, the nonspecific other patterns. It should be noted at the time of ILD diagnosis that patients were receiving a lot of conventional synthetic and biologic agents. Methotrexate was, you know, predictably the most common, 38 out of the 63 patients were on methotrexate, and 15 were on leflunamide. The authors don't tell us how many patients were on both, which is done, but I can assume that the majority were on one or the other. There were seven on a plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, seven on a tanercept, only three on adalimumab, and only two on infliximab, two on sertolizumab pegol, one on, four on imuran, one on sulfasalazine. There was one patient who was still on gold salts for some reason, and one each on rituximab and tocilizumab. So in general, it was patients who were treated with one non-biologic DMARD, plus minus one other, but not everyone was on one. The authors point out that 23% of the 63 patients, the development of ILD was closely related, they say, to the administration of synthetic DMARDs. It's a dubious assumption. I would say that the development of ILD is probably closely related to worsening disease, which is also closely related to the administration of synthetic DMARDs. This is the problem we always have in studies like this. The kinds of patients who develop ILD are the kinds of patients who have active disease. These are also the kinds of patients who we are giving biologic DMARDs to. I'm never quite sure what to make of that, and the way they worded this is a little bit dubious in my opinion. The baseline dose of prednisone was 10 milligrams with a range of 5 to 13.1. Again, this kind of speaks to the activity of disease. My goal for patients with rheumatoid arthritis is for them to not be on steroid. And if I'm giving them steroid, I usually don't give them that much because it usually doesn't take too much if they're already on some other DMARD therapy. That kind of makes me worried, and I'll talk about why later. So what did they see with the Batacept? Well, they actually saw a lot of improvement. 
On the MMRC scale, patients improved, and there's a statistically significant difference between improvement and worsening at three months, six months, and at 12 months. They also improved with regard to their FVC, and they improved with regard to the DLCO. So across a broad variety of measures, we saw some improvement. How did they do with respect to the DAS-28? Well, everyone improved. The DAS-28 moved from somewhere around 5, which is, you know, a pretty respectable DAS, down to around 3, and it sort of stayed there at 3 months, 6 months, and 12 months. What about the prednisone dose? That also improved. Prednisone at baseline was around 10 milligrams, as we said earlier, and trended down to around 5 milligrams at 3 months, 6 months, and 12 months. Those differences were statistically significantly different. Abatacept had to be withdrawn in 11 of 63 patients. Some of this was due to inefficacy, some of this was due to worsening of joint pains, and a couple were due to respiratory infections, that was two, urinary tract infections of one, and one serious cutaneous reaction. In general, abatacept's pretty well tolerated, so most of these patients were taken off because of lack of efficacy. So based on this trial, what do the authors conclude? They say that, and I quote, Abatacept seems to be an effective treatment for these patients. Large, randomized, prospective studies are needed to confirm these promising results. I don't think that's wrong, and I like their caveat at the end. But let's rewind and talk about how much faith we can really put in this. Special thanks to the Room Journal Club. They're at at RoomJC, and you can use the hashtag RoomGC to participate for some of the ideas here. So to summarize, I have a couple of concerns. The least of these is that the patients didn't really get that much better. The DAS-28 was down to around 3, and it's hard to get really too low in a clinical trial like this because you'll have outliers who remain in high disease activity. But technically, they didn't get patients into remission. That also required some prednisone. By the end of the study, patients were still taking about 5 milligrams of prednisone. To be fair, in ILD, it's more common that people will be continued on this kind of prednisone than it would be in rheumatoid arthritis so perhaps that just related to their lung findings. More importantly, this was a non-blighted study, and they had subjective endpoints. Were people's DAS-28 really getting better, or were clinicians and patients just thinking they were getting better because they're on a fancy new drug? Likewise, was their MMRC actually improving, or did patients just feel less dyspneic because they knew they were being treated? It was also a heterogeneous population, people came in with different medications, and different patterns of ILD with different prognoses, and then in the end they were all, unfortunately, analyzed together. That's not the author's fault, it's more by necessity because they only had 63 patients. It was a relatively small N. The most concerning thing of all to me, though, is just a very basic question. People seem to get better, but why? Did people get better because this is just the natural history of disease? We don't really know. This population here has never been studied in exactly this manner to see what happens over a year. So we can't say if we'd had a placebo group if they would not have similarly improved. This is especially relevant because in this trial, patients didn't just start a batacept. A lot of patients came in on methotrexate and only a few left on methotrexate. So was it the abatacept that brought about the benefit? Or, and again this is controversial, was it the lack of an offending agent such as methotrexate? Because we don't have a placebo group, we may never know. For these reasons and more, you should always remember that observational trials are the trials that are most likely to be ultimately be reversed by a proper randomized controlled study. When assessing an observational trial, 
I always hope to see a very large effect, a relatively good attempt to deal with confounders, and a clear, well-defined group of patients coming in and coming out. In this trial, the effect wasn't that big, there were a lot of obvious confounders, and the patients coming in had a big variety of diseases, a big variety of different prognoses, and a lot of different things were changed about their therapy. At the end of the day, though, I do think abatacept is a reasonable option in patients who develop interstitial lung disease. There have been some relatively convincing evidence in methotrexate, leflunamide, and certainly the TNF agents that they can cause or precipitate interstitial lung disease. Whether or not that's true, the same data doesn't appear to be seen in abatacept, and trials like this give at least some tacit support to the idea of switching over when patients develop interstitial lung disease. I'd like to end by just saying thanks again to the Rheumatology Journal Club. You can find them at, at RoomJC on Twitter. I think it's a creative way to get people in rheumatology together, and I really encourage everyone to participate at the next one. As for us, thanks again for tuning in. Next week, we will in fact talk about the rheumageddon. Have a great week.